we tend to think of imposter syndrome, I guess, from probably most famously Sheryl Sandberg, who really brought this into the lexicon with her book Lean In. We tend to think of it with a work lens, or certainly I do. If I think about this with a parenting and mothering lens, it's just fascinating, isn't it? Particularly new motherhood. Like, is there an experience with arguably higher stakes? And if you're a first-time mother, you don't have that experience. And it's when you said the expert, I was thinking, gosh, I know a lot of my friends who took that into their parenthood and just thought if they read every single book mm-hmm. that would prepare them, or the perfectionist who you know, the baby's not allowed to cry and nothing's allowed to go on the floor. Tell us a bit about your experience being a parent of three and with clients manifest in that way. Like you say, it doesn't just belong in the work sphere and it's most understood in that area, but it can apply to your confidence as a parent, you know, your friendships and relationships. And I suppose in terms of parenting, it makes me think about, you know, turning up at the school gates and You've got to get everybody out the front door with their bags, you know, to school on time. And yet most mothers then get to school and see everybody else there and imagine they've had a kind of morning that hasn't involved any upsets or hasn't involved any kind of stress. And I think it's, again, that narrative you have in your mind about how you should do it. So like you're describing with some of your friends, this idea that there's a way to parent perfectly or this idea that there's a right way and a wrong way, whereas actually there's just many ways with these things. And I think it comes down to then you become a parent, completely has an impact on how you see yourself. It brings up lots of insecurities and self-doubt is a kind of big part of it. You've got a baby who can't tell you what they need or what they want. And for lots of people, they've come from a life that is kind of more straightforward and easy to understand. And so it's such a shift. And I think that's the thing about imposter syndrome. It preys on insecurity and fears. And so whether it's becoming a parent or making new friends and meeting new people, it can kind of weave itself in there. So what do we do about imposter syndrome? I imagine most people listening are identifying with what we're saying. What's the way out? The thing about it is that there's lots that you can do about it once you're aware of it. And I guess the first thing is identifying it and seeing that it is imposter syndrome, not that you're actually an imposter. And I had this really nice email recently from someone who'd read my book and she said, you know, I completely knew what imposter syndrome was, but I thought other people had imposter syndrome and I was an imposter. <laughs> and I think that's the big thing because firstly, recognising it really is imposter syndrome. It's really difficult when you've got all of these kind of traps and ways of thinking about these things in place that prevent you from seeing that. So whether it's not telling anybody how you feel or whether it's working extra hard so that you feel like it's only thanks to the hard work that things have pulled off. So once you have more of an awareness of it, it's almost putting all of those things to the test a bit more. And I think the biggest thing is to start to externalise the imposter voice so that you hear it as the voice of your fears or the imposter, you know, what it wants you to believe rather than your voice and what you're thinking about things. And then you have a chance to challenge it, like we're saying, you know, like you do with your clients with this idea of, well, what's the evidence? You know, this is a thought or a feeling rather than a fact. And what's the reality of what's going on here? And to start to shift your view, it's about taking in your whole life rather than the bits that you're unhappy with or focusing on the bits where you felt like you could have improved. So if it's in my clinic, I'd get people to start to do a CV of all of their achievements and think about all the things they've done well with, whether it's career or 
family or compliments or feedback from other people and actually kind of have it down on paper, make it really concrete. And then it's something that they kind of gradually add to and regularly read back. Because again, if you think about those rules, you're not connected to any of your success. You're not talking about it. You're not thinking about it. You're not going back over it. And yet you're constantly going over all the things you're worried about or unhappy with. And I think it's also kind of tracking those things going forward. So you start to shift your focus away from this problem-focused view, which our brains are really good at latching onto whether we feel like imposters or not. It's just that simple adage that I think about a lot, which is what we focus on gets bigger. I kind of think of it like a painting. Most people focus on 5 to 10% of their life that they're unhappy with the majority of the time. But if you were looking at a picture and you thought, you know, okay, look at 5 to 10% of it, what is it? You'd have no idea. And yet that's how we're viewing ourselves, you know, through this really warped lens. I started a file, actually. It's interesting you said that. I started it a while ago when I first got into personal development. So probably like 15 years and I read it in a book somewhere and I thought that's just a super smart idea to print off every bit of positive feedback or I'd write it down. And now the file is, I mean, it's 15 years worth. It's quite big. And so whenever I feel that imposter feeling like, I don't know what I'm doing, I'm rubbish, you know, maybe I got some bad feedback and my mind is just making that the whole picture as you were sharing. I go to the file. It's never, ever, ever, I've never got to the end of that file and felt the same way I did at the start. And I think that, when you're feeling anxious, you can't reach those thoughts very easily because your brain is not feeling rational at those points. So having it written down and having a kind of concrete thing to look at when you're feeling like that makes such a difference. And it's funny when I see people, even if I'm getting them just to record the good stuff that happens in the week, often as they read back the list to me, they're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, I did that as well. And how quickly you forget those things. It's amazing that our minds work against us, don't they, for that? They filter out the good So I love this idea of challenging our thoughts. And, you know, you say thoughts aren't. Just that one idea is incredibly empowering. And I know it was game changing for me. You know, I used to walk around just believing every thought, which when I think about it now was such a painful, insane way to live. (laughs) But I think it's a practice, isn't it? To learn to challenge those thoughts. How do we know when something is a thought to challenge and it might be something to do with with the imposter or when some feedback to take on board and actually yeah maybe I do need to get some more skills in that area or maybe I could have done a better podcast interview how do we get that nuance right you know like you say there's two parts to it isn't that the first part is starting to notice what your thoughts are saying to you because actually most people don't particularly notice what their mind's saying it's like an internal commentary that runs along with you that you're not particularly aware of until you start to think about it in a different way and I guess then once you're more aware of it it's like you've got a choice before you just went with it without recognizing it was happening whereas once you see it you've got a choice about how you follow that thought and what you do with it and I guess in a way it's partly just looking at the different perspectives and remembering there's always more than one way of looking at things I suppose ultimately we don't ever know for sure unless we can ask someone or verify in some way what is true or false and I think it's a kind of like acceptance of that too and that probably for some things you know it doesn't even matter that much so for example if you're stuck on a thought about I don't know what somebody else thinks of you then one it's quite hard to know for sure unless you ask the person but two probably 
there's not much you can do it all less on thinking more about yourself it's you know they're thinking more about their selves it's much more likely but I guess on the things that matter to you and that you care about if it's feedback and the feedback source is a good one i.e somebody that you know well or that you respect then it's kind of looking more at it and thinking more about it and I suppose as well it's probably doing it when your emotions aren't so high so when your emotions are high thinking about those things can be quite difficult whereas when you're feeling in a reflective state it's much easier to start to think okay well what was I pleased with what wasn't I and I guess that in a way that's part of kind of compassion it's being able to see what you need to improve on it's recognizing your strengths and it's kind of still working really hard at these things but without that critical or those negative thoughts in the background 